0: Isn't that great? Are these in every classroom? Extra guac. That's cool. You get guacamole, too. And you thrive. It's just weird because, like, you associate with, like, forwarding something more than, like, an extra $1.25. Wait, what? Why?
1: The extra guac is, like... Wow, well, I can afford
0: extra guacamole on my burrito
1: and Chipotle. Yes.
0: Oh, you mean the... Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't pay interest in order to, like, get extra guacamole. But no, it's they're giving you a promo code, so how can you afford not to use it? That's a basic idea of a promo code. It's like, would you rather get something at a cheap store, the same thing at a cheaper store for $80, or would you like it by, $5 shipping, Or would you like free shipping from Amazon, but it costs $85? Is that a weird question? I mean, yeah, because you already like, calculated. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, but you get free shipping. <laughs> Think how great that is.
1: It's not great, it's
0: It's the same amount, but free shipping.
1: Okay, so is the shipping are the shipping times the same?
0: Yeah. It's all exactly the same. It makes no difference to when you get it, what you get, or um, uh, the quality of what you get, or any, or how much you pay. But still, the word "free" in people's eyes light up, right? Okay. I
1: mean, I generally trust Amazon more.
0: Okay, so that that's an intangible. Yeah, yeah. President Trump doesn't, but. Um, you guys heard Assange was um, arrested today. Yeah. Who?
1: Yeah. 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 WikiLeaks. Yeah, WikiLeaks yeah. 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 was arrested again. Yeah.
0: What for? for well, apparently uh, the US told Ecuador it was time for him to be arrested.
1: Exhibition yeah. war Yeah. the US for conspiring with Chelsea Manning.
2: Yeah. That's what his official does. Yeah. 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 Well that's. he'll, he'll probably get charged with yeah. Oh, yeah,
0: including, and, and um, Sweden Actually, still wants him. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, well, I think that what they were probably worried about was WikiLeaks, anti-Trump WikiLeaks, um, starting to maybe come to him. So now it's a good time to arrest him. Okay, anyhow, I looked up that issue about um, risk aversion. Um, so here is a question for you. Um, assume, so I'm, I'm, I just want to get this exactly right. So assume yourself richer by three hundred dollars than you are right now so assume that you have three hundred dollars more than you actually do so Ian assume you have three hundred dollars more than you actually do I wish yeah I know who doesn't okay and now you have the following choice I'm wondering if we should divide the class up No, I'm gonna give it to everyone you have the following choice you can either have a sure gain of a hundred dollars that is, you definitely get $100, or you have a 50% chance. So you have $300 more than you do, and I can either give you another $100. You can just say, I'll take the, I'll take the other $100. Or you can have a 50% chance, you can flip a coin, which you will get $200 if, it gets, if it's heads, and you will get nothing if it's tails. So you can definitely take a hundred you have three hundred dollars more than you actually have. You can have a hundred more or you can flip a coin and get either two hundred or zero. So you're guaranteed a hundred more if you don't flip the coin if you do flip the coin you either get two hundred or you get zero. So guaranteed hundred if you don't flip the coin two hundred or zero fifty fifty chance if you do But I've already given you 300, so I may give you, or you're richer by 300 than you actually are. So what do you do? How many people would just take the 100 that I would give you? Um, Raise them high so I can count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, (laughs) ten, eleven. Okay. Um, And how many people would flip the coin? All right. And how many people would say, I don't want your stinking money, you capitalist roadie pig? All right, no one. That's good. Maybe it's not good. Maybe it's bad. All right, interesting. So um, we're going to wait for Lin Fei. But, but, um, so, Jimmy, the, here's, here's uh, a question for you. Most people have already voted, but, and you're not the tiebreaker. So, not too much pressure. Not too much pressure. So, assume you have $300 more than you actually do. I wonder if I could do this with grades. Assume your grade in this class were a full-letter grade higher than it actually is. No, it won't work. Okay, assume you have $300 more than you actually do. Okay? Um, So now you have the following choice. I can give you $100. Absolutely. You can just say, I'll take the $100 and I'll give it to you. Or you can flip a coin And if it comes up heads, I'll give you 200. If it comes up tails, you get nothing more. So you definitely have the 300. And I've given you 300. I can just give you another 100 if you say, give me another 100. Or we can flip a coin and you'll either get another 200 for a total of 500, or you'll get nothing more, so you'll still have 300. What would you do? I
1: think
0: I would just take the 300. Okay, so. Yeah, the other 100. Okay, so yeah, that's what the majority of the class said. Okay, Um, so you can see that as far as expected utility goes, they're the same. That is a 50 50 chance of flipping a coin means you would expect to win half the time. It's $200, so you'd expect to get the 100. But um, most, although not everyone in the class, is taking the sure thing, the uh, the $100, rather than risking the $100 for the possibility of $200. Okay, so here's the second problem. Assume that you have $500 more than you do today. Things are just getting better and better. It's great. The economy, best economy in the history of the world. So things are getting better and better. So assume you have $500 more than you do today. And here's your choice. A sure loss of $100. That is, if you don't bet, you have to give me $100. So a sure loss of $100. You have $500 more than you do now. But if you don't bet in the bet that I'm about to tell you, which is very similar to the previous bet, if you don't bet, you have to pay me $100 not to bet. So a sure loss of $100 or, a 50% chance, we'll flip a coin if you don't take the sure loss, and it's a 50-50 chance that you'll lose $200 or that you'll lose $0. So how many people will just give me $100? One, two, three, four. And how many people will flip the coin with a 50-50 chance of losing zero and a 50-50 chance of losing 200. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Okay, this is really sweet because it's almost exactly the percentages that they found when they asked these questions. So the, so the percentages that they found, this is, uh, the people who found this are um, Thaler, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics a couple of years ago. Richard Thaler, uh, an economist or a behavioral economist at the University of Chicago. And Matthew Rabin, who um, I have since met and become friends with after I read this, but I didn't realize at the time that he was the person who came up with this. So um, that was a cool thing to discover yesterday when I was looking for this problem that, oh, man, he's a friend of mine. Who knew? Um, So what they found was that in the first choice, where... The majority of you, a larger majority of you, picked the sure gain, than in the second choice, um, picked the 50% chance to lose. I'm just saying that that the majorities weren't the same. Um, a couple of you um, didn't vote the reverse the second time the way you did. the first. How many people voted the reverse the second time? Like well, you guys did? No, that is.
2: We, we bet both times.
0: Or um, no bet one time and did not bet the other time. So, um, didn't you bet once? I bet both times. You bet both times. Oh, and you bet both, okay. How many people did not bet both times? And how many people bet neither time? Okay, so um, here's what they found. That um, in the first problem, 72% of the people that they asked, and they asked a lot of people, um, took the sure $100. And um, 28% of the people um, bet, uh, flip the coin for the chance for 200, but also 50/50 chance of zero. In the second scenario, 36%, so not 28. There was a difference of eight percent. Same people, they're asking just the way I did. 36% took the sure loss, and 64% took the 50/50 chance. To lose 250, 50 chance to lose zero. So, um, the point is not that some people change their mind or that, this, that the percentages aren't the same but that there's a clear two, something roughly approaching a two-to-one majority in the first case for taking the sure gain of $100 and not risking it on a 50% chance, so you guys were outliers and there were, there were one or two other people. And in the second, there was something close to a two-to-one majority um, that did not, would not take the sure loss of $100 but would flip a coin with a 50-50 um, chance of not losing anything. And a 50 50 chance of losing 200. Now, what's interesting about this is what? It's the same game. It's two ways of describing the same game. The game is that there's $300 and you can end up with three, there's a, there's, you can, that that you can, Guarantee yourself $400 in each game. In the first game, you guarantee yourself $400 by not playing. In the second game, how do you guarantee yourself $400? Not playing. By not playing. So in both games, you can guarantee yourself $400 by not playing. And in both games, you have a chance for either $500 or $300 by playing. So even though on the surface it looks different it turns out to be the same game and yet people are inconsistent in what they do um, most people are inconsistent in what they do depending on how the game is presented to them so is that surprising to you guys do you see that structurally it's the same game it's it's you can have 400 or you can take you can trot you can take a 50-50 chance for 500 But it's also 50-50 chance that you end up with 300. And these are two ways of implementing that idea that you can definitely have 400, 50-50 chance that you can, or you can choose the 50-50 chance for 500 versus a 50-50 chance for 300. And yet if you implement the game one way, most people won't play it. And if you implement the game the other way, most people will play it. And yet it's the same game. Yeah?
2: Well, I, I think, you know, of course, that this is, it asks you to abstract and see both games are the same, but there is psychologically they're not the same, and I'm not sure that it's because in the second game I'm just given 500, and that's all, you know, it came from nowhere, and it's, it's a, an act of grace, whatever. And then, then I, it's okay to, it's more okay to risk it, whereas in the first game you had given me the 300, and then some extra thing. Was going to say. So I, I think they're not actually psychologically the same, although, of course, on, on an abstract level, they are
0: the same. Yeah, no, the whole point is that they're not psychologically the same. It turns out they then did this with um, um, in medical situations, and it actually has consequences. If uh, Any of you pre med? Um, okay, well, it has consequences for how you present choices to patients, it turns out. That um, most people, this is this is what they think they would say. It's not clear what they would say if someone is um, um, offered surgery that could be life extending, but could also be life shortening, as emergency or as, as um, heroic intervention often is. If you say there's, if you tell people there's an eighty percent chance that the surgery will succeed and a 20% chance that you'll die on the operating table. Um, so let's say you had to make that choice. What would you do, take the surgery or not?
1: Well, what's your situation if you get no surgery?
0: Um, that, let's just say that you die within a year. Get the surgery. Have the surgery. Yeah. Okay. What if they... Well, but,
1: how, how long is the life yeah. extended by? Yeah, that's the too. Is make body? it
0: four to one. I mean, make it exactly what it should be. So, four years versus one year. So
2: How old am I? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: By the time you're my age, you don't give a shit about four years. 80 years
2: old. Well, yeah, that's, that's time time to, like. Hey, you're you. You're you.
0: Should be like four four I feel
1: like okay. oh, four 16, I feel like. Oh, you just don't like this four-year stuff. i okay. like one year.
0: It's like, oh, <laughs> <hell>? <laughs> All right, get back to me when you're 90. Let me know. Um, oh, shit. (laughs) 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 Um, okay, make it four and 16.
1: Okay.
0: Oh, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. what? Okay, you're surgery. So everyone gets surgery, 80% chance of success, you get 16 years. Um, And uh, um, if you don't have the surgery, you live four years, but if you do have the surgery, 20% chance you die right away. Okay, um... If you present it the other way, 20% chance that now you guys know the trick, so I'm not going to actually ask you, but think about it anyhow. If you say, if you have the surgery, there's 20% chance you'll die tomorrow in the operating room. But an 80% chance that you'll live another 16 years instead of another four years. Do you have the surgery? I said I'm not asking, but yet I seem to be asking. surgery. You still have the surgery? Yeah even with a 20% chance that you'll die tomorrow, and otherwise four years for sure that you get to live. You still have the surgery. Yeah. Would everyone? That one depends on age. But, young but young it's the same question. Qu- notice it's the same question. The other question it's just depends percent. On age. Yeah, but... All on yeah.
1: Quality yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. of life. Yeah, just, I mean, just I mean, control, I mean, there's as we like, like to say, control okay. for all that. In the original question, it's like yeah, you like, have 300 so versus yeah. you have 500. So
1: like in the first question, yeah. if you're already like, <coughs> what's something you think is like for? Like if you're already 20 versus if you're already like 28, 30, yeah, 20 60. Or 36 or something like whatever, however the math works out.
0: Okay, but the, the point is, the fir- in the first question, it's it's the same, <coughs> it's exactly the same, but in the second question, it's also exactly the same. And what's interesting is, and this is actually something you should know about um, what they don't teach in medical school. Um, one thing they don't teach in medical school, medical school turns out to be Bayesian analysis, which is really, really bad that they don't teach it. Um, do you guys know what Bayesian analysis is? Does anyone know what it is? All right, so here's a question that most doctors get wrong. Um, which is interesting. So let's say back in, back in the really, really grim days of the mid-'80s, there were people who were saying that everyone in the country should have an HIV test, um, that it was really important that people have HIV tests so you would know whether you were seropositive or seronegative and you could decide what to do accordingly. Now, HIV tests were about 99% accurate, that is um, and do you guys know that with medical tests you tweak the results so that you get it's really bad to get a false negative so you you would it's much better to get a false positive than a false negative why is that because well, then you'll get treatment yeah a false positive you investigate more yeah um, a false negative you don't investigate when you should be so the outcome of a false negative is um, is much worse outcome than the outcome of a false positive. So what you do is you 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 is you sensitize tests so that they are more likely to overreact than to underreact to um, to whatever is being tested for, and um, so false positives are less. Are usually less of an issue than false negatives. Not always, but usually less of an issue than false negatives. Okay, so um, they tweaked HIV tests in the 1980s so that they had about a 1% false positive rate. Um, if you got a negative on the HIV test, you were pretty much 100% sure to be negative. If you got a positive, there was a um, then um, false positives were uh, would only occur in 1% of a negative population. Only 1% of them would get a false positive. So if at the time, which was true, the rate of HIV in the general population was about one in a 1,000, and um, everyone took an HIV test, then of those 1,000 people, how many would come out as positive? if the false positive rate is one percent so out of a thousand do the math here help me out what so there would be 10 false positives and one true positive so if you were a uh, just a member of the general population with with no um with none uh, not in any of the categories or not known to be in any of the categories in which hiv was more widespread um in um injection drug users um gay men haitians for a while um then Um, if you weren't known to be, if you were just an average person, if they didn't know if the people doing the test didn't know whose tests they were doing and the whole population was being given HIV tests um, then for every 10 people who were told that they were positive, only there would only be one other person, it would be 10 to 1 um, false positives to true positives. So But most doctors thought that if you got a positive test, if you remember the general population and your test came back positive, the odds were 99 out of 100 that you did have HIV, whereas, in fact, the odds were only 1 in 10 that you had HIV. Does that make sense to people? Anyone that doesn't make sense to you, do you see why the odds are only 1 in 10? that you have HIV? Okay. Anyone not see? Cough if you don't see why. All right. Good. So none of you has pneumonia because you're not coughing. That's great. Okay. So, um, but doctors didn't know that. So um, basically, if you had an HIV test, which you used to have to do to get married, at least in Massachusetts. So they did do it to a large part of the general population. This is before gay marriage was legal. Um, if you um, had a positive, um, you freaked out. Whereas the odds were, if without any further priors, without knowing anything further about you, um, the odds, if you had a positive, the odds were only 1 in 10 that you were positive. But your doctor would say, oh my god, you have 99 out of 100 chance of having HIV. Let's hope it's not true, but I think it is. Um, And that's because they didn't get the the way the statistical analysis worked. So what Bayesian analysis is, is you begin with, it's actually really interesting, um, because yesterday's the anniversary. You guys know the big photograph that was released yesterday? Um, Julian Assange looking like an old, no, 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 that was today. Yes. Um, do you know why it was released yesterday? I only found this, this out late yesterday. Because it's the 100th anniversary of the eclipse that proved Einstein right about how much gravity bends light. Do people know about this? So on April 10th, 1919, there was a total eclipse of the sun. And there was a star that was right behind the sun. If you looked straight at the sun, there was a star that was just above it and they knew that star was going to be there but ordinarily you can't see it but in the total eclipse of the Sun they could see the star behind the Sun because the Sun was eclipsed they could see the star behind it and Newtonian physics predicted where the star would look like it was and Einsteinian physics said no the light from the star would be bent twice as much as Newtonian physics predicted, so that the star would look considerably displaced from where Newton predicted it would be. And this is, this is one of the great anecdotes of physics of all time. Um, people all over the world um, watched the eclipse Um, astronomers and so on all over the world watched the eclipse and the star was looked like its appearance in the sky was where Einstein predicted it would be and not where Newton predicted it would be. Um, So that was the first and just stunning revolutionary confirmation of Einstein's theory of general relativity which which has to do with gravity and light. Um, And so people went to Einstein and interviewed him the next day and said, "Wow, this is amazing! You must be—you must be on top of the world about this. Aren't you ecstatic um, to find to find that this is true?" And Einstein said, "Meh." And um, and someone said, "Well, what would you have done if it were falsified? What would you have done if it turned out you were wrong?" And then he very famously said, "Then I would have felt very sorry for the Lord God. The theory was correct." So. Um, the reason they released the black hole picture yesterday is it was the hundredth anniversary of that moment. And it was black holes were are a consequence of Einstein's theory of general relativity. That is, um, people started thinking about black holes because they came out of Einstein. At any rate, what this has to do with Bayesian analysis is that's the story that I told you is a standard story. It's actually not the true story. The true story is the sun was closer to where Newton predicted it would be than to where Einstein, I mean the star was closer to where Newton predicted it would be than to where Einstein predicted it would be. And the problem was that the scientists who observed this had a prior sense of how good their confirmation bias was, I mean how much their confirmation bias was and how good their instruments were. And the Newtonian results were too good whereas the Einsteinian results, they were looking at this from various different places, conformed much more to a pattern of experimental error that they had internalized. So Einstein was where it would be with experimental error baked in. Newton's was too good, and there wasn't enough experimental error. So they assumed that getting the right response for Newton, that was the error. Um, they didn't say this to the public because the public would have said fake news Um, but that in fact it's a a really fascinating case of a kind of intuitive Bayesianism so what Bayesianism is is you know what the odds of something being true um, before you investigate it what the odds are so remember we talked about flipping coins if you get um, 50 heads in a row um, what are the odds that that's a fair coin? Very low. Um, 1 and 2 to the 50th or 1 and 2 to the 49th, something like that. The odds, if you flip a coin, that, that you get 50 heads in a row, the odds that it's a fair coin are extremely low. So every time you flip a coin and it comes up heads, every time that happens that you're doing it in a row and it comes up heads, that erodes your confidence that it's a fair coin. And so what happens is it's not true that a string of heads or a string of reds in roulette or a string of zeros in roulette um, can't happen in a row if they happen in a row. If you get 12 reds in a row in roulette, it's much more likely that the wheel is fixed than this happened randomly. The odds that it happens randomly are one in four thousand and ninety-six. So yeah, every one in four hundred thousand, every one every one out of four thousand and ninety-six um, spins of the wheel, you're going to get twelve reds in a row. But that's a lot of spins of the wheel. And if you just came in and then you saw a run like that happening, you would be right to be suspicious. The odds would be higher that the wheel was fixed than that you just happened to come in in that one out of 4,096 chance. And then if you get 15 heads in a row, or 15 reds in a row, the odds are even lower. So that's what's called prior odds. And what prior odds means is you look at the odds that you have HIV or the odds that um, the bowl is gonna come up red, and you go in assuming that you know what the odds are, and then you get a result which is a little bit odd, a little bit anomalous, like you tested positive, or like there were five reds in a row. And now, if there are five reds in a row, you may say to yourself, you know, there's a 1 in 32 chance that this wheel is fixed, or something like that. Um, probably you'd say a lot lower, but there's a chance that this wheel is fixed. And then every subsequent red that you get, the chances that it's fixed go up and the chance that it's an honest wheel go down. And so it's, you're not treating each role independently, nor should you be. That's how Bayesian analysis works. So the reason I'm bringing this up is because this isn't taught in med school on the whole. And doctors don't know it, and so they get um, they get probabilities wrong. And the way that Rabin and Thaler figured that out was they asked doctors the same question that I asked you, which is, um, would you recommend surgery if there was a twenty percent chance? They asked surgeons this: Would you ask, recommend surgery if there's a twenty percent chance that the patient would die? And they all said, No, 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 no. First, do no harm. Hippocratic oath. No, 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 no. And then they said, would you recommend surgery if there's an 80% chance that the patient would live? And they'd say, oh yes, of course. So they were, they were um, treating the exact same question simply the way it was couched, as would you do it if there was a good chance for a positive out, outcome? Yes. Would you do it if there was a realistic chance of a dreadfully negative outcome? Um, no. But it was the same question each time. So um, if you learn nothing else, when you're 90 and your life has been saved, come tell me how this... Oh, shit. All right. Um, so that's, that's the question that, w- that we were looking at yesterday. And what, it, what it's particularly about, um, the way Rabin and Thaler are doing, is what's called loss aversion. That most of you were not willing to give up the $100 that was guaranteed, and I think this is what owner was saying, most of you were not willing to give up the $100 that you were guaranteed. You could just have it and walk away. Most of you were not willing to give up $100 that was guaranteed um, if you were also risking, um, even if you were, sorry, even if there was a possibility that you could get $200. But most of you were not willing to give up hundred dollars if there was a possibility that you didn't have to do it. So if you start with 300 and you get are guaranteed another hundred, um, most of you take the guaranteed hundred. If you start with 500 and you definitely have to give up a hundred or you could keep the 500, most of you did not want to definitely give up the hundred. So in both cases, There was money that you could have, and in one case to keep it, remember in Golden Balls, they have it, but can they keep it, as Jasper Carrot said? In most cases, if you somehow had it, even though you didn't really, according to the rules of the game, but it felt like you did, in most cases, you would take the chance to keep it. But if it wasn't yours yet even though the situation under the hood is exactly the same, then you didn't regret it as much if you didn't um, try to get it. So this all started out, Thaler described this as um, a thing that he discovered. He had a friend who collected wine, and he got really interested in the fact, and I think we've all had this experience, that the guy would not sell a bottle of wine for a price that he would also not pay for that same bottle of wine. That is, that he collected wine, so he had a Chateau Lafitte 1961, and someone offers him $500 for a Chateau Lafite 1961, and no, he's not going to sell it for $500, no way. Assume, um, assume um, equal utility for the money here. Um, do you know what I mean by equal utility? This is one way they tried to solve it, but it turned out that it didn't work. Does everyone know what that means? That um, in real life, if you have $1,000, $1 a dollar means a lot less to you than if you have $10. Um, but for the sake of figuring out cal- um, calculations like this, you should treat a dollar as always as valuable as any other dollar to a person. That is, that if you have $1,000, $1 a dollar means as much to you as it would mean to you if you had $10. And you don't have to treat it that way, but you can, just, you can make it more complicated by multiplying it, by doing percentages or something like that. But just to make the math easy, assume every dollar has equal utility. So um, what he found was... so So for his friend, the $500 was um, $500 whether he was earning it or spending it. It's not like, um, oh, I don't need $500, so no, or, oh, I do need $500, so no. $500 is $500. Um, It was pure value, um, and its value was unchanging. So what he found was that, and I think we all agree with this, right, that the friend would not sell his Chateau Lafitte 61 for $500 and he would not buy a bottle of Chateau Lafitte 1961 for $500 that is that because he owned it he regarded it somehow as something he didn't want to give up and if he had $500 instead and didn't own the bottle he wouldn't pay the $500 to get the bottle and that is inconsistent preference if $500 is where, is where you have a crossover of, um, of values, if the bottle is worth $500, if that's the market-clearing cost of the bottle, then it's inconsistent of him to stick with what he has, whether it's money or the bottle of wine, rather than trading. So it might be, for example, that he would only sell the bottle for $750, but he would only buy a similar bottle for $250. Have you all had that experience in your own lives that there's stuff that you wouldn't sell but also wouldn't buy? No? Is there stuff you wish you hadn't bought? Okay. Would you set would you return it? Like immediately, boom, you could return it. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. What? Um, I'm just. I'm trying to think. We're we're we're, we're slightly less object oriented than previous generations were because um, so much of what our orientation is information now rather than objects. Um, but it is a kind of standard thing that if it's yours. Um, you won't sell it for... Well, it actually came up at Brandeis, you guys may know, about 10 years ago when the question of selling the art in the Rose Art Museum came up. Do you guys all know about this? So during during the crash, the 2007-2008 crash, um, there was a lot of question about um, how underwater various institutions were going to go. And Brandeis could really the Rose Art Museum is worth about the 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 art in the Rose Art Museum at the time was worth about five hundred million dollars. It's probably worth more now, but let's say it's roughly five hundred million dollars, which is like at the time was um, close to two thirds of Brandeis's endowment. So if all the art the Rose Art Museum had been sold. Brandeis's endowment would go up by 67%, let's say, which is a lot. Um, And um, so the president at the time announced that he and the trustees um, had decided to sell the art. And this was um, an incredible scandal in the art world and the world of culture and so on. Um, because Brandeis is supposed to be taking care of this art, and you know this is one of the premier art collections of 20th century art and of contemporary art in um, in uh, in the world. And here Brandeis is doing something really, really awful by wanting to sell the art, and there is a whole lot of horror and disgust at Brandeis thinking about doing this. And enough horror and disgust, in fact, that they stop thinking about it. They were going to sell everything, they were going to sell enough, they actually were going to sell all, yeah, it was going to turn into a gallery. It's just, I mean, the Royce Art Museum is like a modern art museum, typically,
1: like contemporary, but they have like rembrandts and stuff that they could probably sell that like they don't have on display.
0: Yeah, they were going to sell all of it.
1: That doesn't seem like, why not just like dip your toe in and like sell a couple of
0: they were going to sell it bit by bit, but they are going to sell it all. They did sell a few things in the 80s, which people are pissed off at. Um, they sold a Van Gogh. So at any rate, they were going to sell all of it. And they're so are you guys unhappy with that idea? <laughs> okay, so, so the people who were advocating for selling said, look at the situation Brandeis is in. Let's say that Brandeis had the money and not the art. Given the situation that we're in, would we really spend that kind of money to have that museum? And the answer is obviously not. That is that if Brandeis had the money, they had a lot better things to do with the money than buy art for a single art museum. So on the one hand, they had the art, and people were appalled by the idea that they would sell it for money. On the other hand, if the then president of Brandeis had said, well, it's true that we're very poor, but there's this amazing um, um, calcaneo that's just been offered on auction, and we can get it for a mere $50 million, I think we'll do it. It doesn't matter that we have no money for anything else. People would have been appalled at the waste of money. So again, that's an inconsistent preference, (laughs) that if you're going to sell... Um, if you're not going to buy, then why wouldn't you sell? Under under, um, why isn't that just a, a different way of describing the same thing? Yeah.
2: So I think you know, sort of our preferences are clearly evolved preferences, and they're not; they don't seem rational. Mm-hmm. But I think you know, maybe evolution is cleverer than we are. There, there's in this case, it's, it's, I think that um, like we really need to be careful about like it is equivalent on one abstract level, but. Like, say, for instance, there's, there's data that students who study uh, game theory become more selfish than they were, because they learned that it was irrational uh-huh. to be uh, altruistic, or, you know, on some level. And then they stopped behaving in ways that, that would be pro-social and actually evolved to, to be beneficial, really. And I think in the case of the art gallery as well, I think that, that you're right. But, like, this, given that... Wait, what am I right about? No, no, not that you're like right. the the two are equivalent. The situation is yes. like the um, the president saying, "Oh, well, let's buy this great work of art," although we're dying. They're abstract, but I like we feel that it's not equivalent. We might not yet be able to articulate why, but it's given that we're evolved creatures and evolution has had a lot of time to figure this. out. so, do, do you know that like, is that is that just a plea for conservatism? I know I'm a bit troubled by it, but that's how I. I'm not normally conservative, but in this case, I feel like if there is a reason that we do like, you know, so there, there might just be something we're missing. Uh, uh, mm-hmm. is what I, I feel that, that maybe there's a reason why we feel this way. Sorry, <laughs> I
0: just, okay. yeah, our, yeah. I mean, it's basically we still seem to prefer a bird in the hand to two in the bush, even if we're guaranteed the two birds, or even if there's a very good chance of getting the two birds—better than fifty percent chance. Like getting the two birds in the bush. Um, sorry. I, I, I don't know.
1: I've never heard about two birds in the bush. That
0: what that you one? never, you didn't hear a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. You didn't know that that was. You've heard the phrase a bird in the hand. There's a great
1: guy commercial Marshall it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll figure it
0: out. I'll All right. Watch. It's basically um, if you have something, don't risk it. Don't speculate.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So the the this it's like a stitch in time saves nine. Um, do you know what that means? I've heard that one. <laughs> okay. Um, a rolling stone gathers no moss? No? You've never heard that? I've heard that one. Okay. No one knows what it means. Um, but a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush um, basically means... Um,
1: oh, oh. See, that makes, that makes sense. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. So All you have right. you catch the two birds in the bush.
0: Yes. Yes. So...
1: If you think about, like, uncertainty in the future, maybe that's one way to think about it. Like, <coughs> you don't know what's going to happen in the future. So, like, spending $500 for a bottle of wine now, like, you don't know if you have another use for that in the future. And then, like, getting rid of the bottle of wine now, you don't, well, that's a weird, because you don't really use bottles of wine. Yeah. So like, maybe that's a way to think it. But you it. value them. Yeah.
0: And there's a kind of, the collect, I mean, here we get close to aesthetics, and certainly with works of art we do, which is the way a collector values something is maybe different from the way um, a trader or merchant values something. Um, the way someone engaged in commerce values it. You know, Sotheby's sells everything they have. And they still have exhibits, but they're selling them all. Um, so, I th- yeah, I think that's part of it. What if you
1: think, like, if you think of it as, like, Maybe in the future they won't need... They'll look back and, like, hindsight's twenty twenty, and they'll be like, we didn't need to sell the Rose Art Museum, oh shucks. So they have to, like... So being, like, averse to selling it is just accounting for the fact that you don't know 100% that it's the right decision to make.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Are the, were there, like, economists on the board at the time? Oh, totally. Because... It it just doesn't. I think there's like a valid conversation in general of do we need the Rose Art Museum? Like, look at how much money that could add to our endowment. Like, regardless of the economic circumstances. Right. Yes. Good. In like two years, when there's probably going to be another recession, that conversation could come back again. Yeah. And it it that just feels like a like a very impulsive because. I would, ju- I would just imagine if there were economists on the board they would say, well, if we're going to do it now we might as well do it, have done it last year or next year or ha- whatever. Yeah. The times don't necessarily call for it yeah. because the economy right. will eventually come back up. Yeah, yeah. So it's like a really permanent solution to a temporary problem no matter how grave that temporary problem might be.
0: Well, it was grave enough that some people were afraid Brandeis would go bankrupt. You know, right. Brandeis would be in Hampshire College Territory. Um well no one knew how bad things were gonna get and then it turned out they didn't get quite as bad as people were afraid. Yeah. Um but um but the other side of what you're saying is that there's never a time that you shouldn't that if you think right. that way, there's never a time that you shouldn't be selling the Rose Art Museum. Um you should always be doing it. Right. Um always be selling, as they say in um Glengarry Glenn
2: Royce. Like, it's like you're you're staking the identity of the institution by selling
0: it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's certainly Brandeis took a huge reputational hit and would have taken a much huger reputational hit had they actually sold the art. But would it have been a $500 million reputational hit? No. Would it have been, you know, a $10 million reputational hit? Probably.
1: How do you quantify
0: that? Um, It's a good question, but it does get quantified. I mean, there are. Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's it's um, um, general how it it's it's quantified um, through looking in general at how reputational hits of various sorts have affected the bottom line of various institutions over over you know many years of investigation and then there are rules for doing it you know it's like it's like wins above replacement how do you quantify that in sports. Um, and um, the answer is you just look at all the stats and um, in general how those stats... Do, do people know about this, about the stat? It's a sabermetric stat, wins above replacement. Okay, so the question whether you should um, um, get this hotshot shortstop or not um, is the question is how many more wins will hiring this shortstop give your team? Um, than your team would have if it had an average Major League Baseball shortstop. So, you know, this, this shortstop has a good fielding average and a good batting average and hits a home run once in a while and steals bases with 90, you know, steals um, 80 bases a year and is only thrown out four times a year. Um, so how valuable is that to a team? That is how many, and and ultimately the value of any player is how many wins the team gets out of that player. But how can? But in baseball, one player doesn't give you a win. Even a pitcher, although pitchers are saddled with one loss records, they don't actually. um, That's that's not even fair to them. Um, But how does a shortstop get a win? And, um, or maybe in softball. Um, So how does a shortstop get a win? So. Just be sports. We're just sports talk. A lot of, sports talking. Um,
1: like revenue created in baseball comes from like the prestige of the team. So if you have a really yeah. famous, reputable,
0: like. Okay, but let's just say so. so board, like that, yeah, just, but yeah. The the question is you can't you can't know how the Red Sox would have done if they hadn't traded for this shortstop. Um, you just can't know. So you do it statistically, which is um, what you do is you look at a team and you come up with a formula that relates hits, hits that the team has had over the course of a season with fielding percentage and chances and assists and um, outs made that the team has had, the entire team, over the course of the season. You know, right fielders, catchers, everyone. Um, with singles, with doubles, with triples, with home runs, with strikeouts, with every possible thing that a fielder and a batter can do that can be quantified. And you come up with as good a formula as you can, and this is what Bill James very famously did, that will predict how many wins a team... Bill James can look at everything except a team's one lost record and can predict very accurately from the number of hits, the number of strikeouts, the number of walks, the number of, um, of errors, the number of, um, of putouts, the number of assists, the number of hits yielded, and so on, um, the number of runs over the course of a season, he can predict accurately what the one lost record of that team was. So without knowing the one lost record, Bill James can predict accurately what the one lost record is. Um, and in some ways that's not surprising, but in some ways it is, because you can have a series of, you know, famously, there's an electoral college effect to baseball, which is that you can have a seven-game World Series, and the Yankees can have scored 46 runs, and the Red Sox have scored 15 runs, and yet the Red Sox win the World Series. So, so it's interesting, then, that you can still um, predict with enough of these statistics what the one loss record of a team is. You then look at the particular player that you're thinking about and you apply that formula to that player's (coughs) stats compared to an average player in the same position's stats. And then if if you can predict from those stats that if it were a team, that team would have won four games, then that player... Is worth four games more than the average player, assuming that player was was replaced by an average player. So that's wins above replacement. Now let's talk about the gambler, by Dostoevsky. All right, Monday for sure. Read the Maltese Falcon um, over the weekend. What? We should we should have started. Oh well. Um, Maltese Falcon. You'll like it. Have a good weekend, everyone.